We implemented many ITIL processes. The world's most practiced method for project management. ITIL has been um, a catalyst in my career. Hundreds of thousands of people with a Prince 2 qualification. I've seen ITIL help organizations be more successful. The Axelos Podcast, bringing best practice directly to you. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this uh, episode of the Axelos Best Practice Podcast. I'm your host, Akshay Anand, and with me is quite possibly the best panel we've ever assembled since the last episode. Uh, joining me today are three Axelosians, as we like to call ourselves, uh, in no order except uh, how you appear on my screen, going clockwise. Uh, we've got James Lord, uh, who's representing our assessments team. We've got Tom Young, who's representing our uh, commissioning and content team. And last but certainly not least, we have the lovely Rashida Chekhov, who is representing, is it Chekhov? Is it Chekhov? Chekhov. Chekhov, there you go, who's representing our translations team. Um, I, I've worked with them for, for uh, a number of years, uh, but their, their names and the work they, that they do uh, isn't perhaps as well known to our community uh, and um, I thought it'd be good to take an opportunity to talk about what they do and how their work is so valuable to us when we create idle guidance, uh, as well as the book and the exams and, and so on. Um, I'd prefer if they introduce themselves uh, so that I don't mess anything up or, or misquote them on anything. Uh, James, why don't you get started? We'll go in order. Um, why don't you start by uh, giving us a quick introduction? Thank you very much. Uh, hello, everybody. My name is James Lord, and I am one of the senior qualification and assessment specialists at Axelos. Probably one of the longest job titles we've got, but um, a key part of the work that I and my team do is the uh, design and support around exam questions, syllabi. We also get involved in a lot of, well, we're responsible for maintaining the exams and assessments and uh, making sure that everything is functioning as we'd expect it to be. And I'll be going into that a little bit later, but that's uh, our job in a nutshell. Excellent. And uh, next, Tom, tell us a bit about yourself. Yeah. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Tom Young and I work in the content team at Axelos uh, and I'm the commissioning editor for Vital Core Content. Uh, so basically what our team does, uh, we are responsible for all the, the books we put out um, and also all the supplement material, any content like blog posts and stuff that goes on the Axelos website. Um, and my role within the team in particular is, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm in charge of the core content for Axelos. So it's my job to make sure that we publish some books that look good and hopefully read quite well and don't have any spelling errors. <laughs> <in them. laughs> but no, no promises. <laughs> uh, and lastly, Rashida. Hi, everybody. My name is Rashida Chekhov. I'm the head of uh, translations at Axelos. Um, and my role is uh, is quite varied, actually. It's a really exciting role. I think it's the best role in the company, to be honest with you. But <laughs> you know, um, I get I get to review all the content, whether it's uh, you know the books and the case studies and everything, as well as the uh, exam content before it's published, um, just to give it uh, a final look before before we, we we let it out in in the whole world. Uh, and to make sure that everybody can uh, can read it in English, and then and then we get to translate it. And this is where the exciting part of my job really 
uh, kicks in. And uh, and I guess we'll be talking more about that a bit later. We will indeed. Um, the the way I see you guys, you, you, I mean, we previous versions of the uh, previous episodes of this podcast, we've talked about um, the actual content creation. You know, talking with SMEs or lead editors, uh, talking about what we chose uh, to write it about in a book, uh, what perhaps went on to the editing um, floor, and and so on. But the way I see the three of you and, and the work that your teams do is you're sort of the bookends to that. You're, you're involved right at the very start in terms of helping us uh, craft that uh, initial syllabus and with the learning outcomes, uh, set up all the um, authors and uh, all the uh, sort of logistics of, and, uh, of, of collaboration and, and so on, uh, all the way through to after the the raw manuscript is produced, as it were, to copy editing and then sort of taking it um, to its logical conclusion. So, so let's start with by talking about from what my experience has been the first step, which is the syllabus creation. Uh, and I think this is this is something, James, that that you and your team get very heavily involved with. Uh, but for for those of our listeners who are perhaps not as familiar with the mechanics of the products we create. Um, can you briefly describe what it means to, to create a syllabus? I mean, what is a syllabus? Uh, presumably people remember that from their school days, but for those who, who don't, what is a syllabus? How would we go about creating one? That is actually quite an interesting question. And uh, there are a variety of takes on what actually, what a syllabus actually is. But generally, and particularly in the terms uh, that people will be familiar looking through the candidate syllabi that we provide, um, they contain the outcomes that a candidate um, should hopefully achieve upon studying and passing the, the certification. Um, Ours also include the criterion against which the candidates um, will be assessed. Um, I guess if you if you'd like to think of it as a almost a reference guide for what the subject and assessment will be will be like. Um, in there, you'll find um, an overview as to what the purpose of this qualification is. Who is designed for and the kind of information that you need to at a candidate level support you studying like what kind of questions am i going to be presented with and where in whatever text um will i find appropriate things to support me but i think that's another thing throughout our development process the the syllabus evolves into that um mm what we start at with these early stages if you don't mind me going sure, into that, um, we will start with some very broad learning outcomes that are developed by uh, the sort of whatever architectural team is in in place for a product they will set out working with our product management team getting all the appropriate feedback to decide what's this what's the the main part of this qualification or, or whatever what's it going to to teach our candidates and they'll draw out some high level objectives like at the end of at a high level i want my candidates to understand the ITIL guiding principles for example 
and then we will work with them and this is where our team comes and goes okay you you want the candidate to be able to do that uh, that's one of the the outcomes that you want here's how we might assess that for example part of that is going to be we'll probably test a candidate's ability to recall the definitions of the guiding principles, or recall the purposes of the guiding principles. So that's part of what that learning outcome will be. And that will inform future discussions because that in itself will then, once the writing side of things are underway, inform what we would expect to see within the book. So it's this kind of interesting back and forth. It, it's certainly a very collaborative exercise. That's what, that's what I've observed all the way throughout. Absolutely. And it, it, it kind of has to be because obviously the, the assessment and the, the product are very heavily interlinked. And a key part of what we do is going back to um, the people who put together the initial learning outcomes and say, you've said the candidate needs to be able, uh, we want the candidate to be able to evaluate something. And then it's our job to go back and say okay well this is the kind of thing that we're then going to need to test on is this what you had in mind or when you say evaluate do you actually mean this and I'll go into that a little bit well actually it kind of neatly dovetails into kind of the next section because quite a lot of what we do at the initial stage is to look at the perspective blooms level of the assessment criterion and the learning outcome so Bloom's level is an interesting thing. I mean, I, I, it was a completely new concept to me when I uh, joined Axelos. And um, I think most of, most of our candidates might, might see it on, on the sort of public, publicly published syllabus, um, on the public version of the syllabus. Uh, if you're a trainer, certainly you, you need to understand the differences so you can help your, your students learn um, better or, or to be able to uh, pass the assessment. Um, but for the majority of our, of our uh, community, I think it makes sense if we could also provide them with a, with a brief description of what these levels are that we, we're testing so that they have a, a, a better appreciation of what to expect in, in one of our assessments. Okie dokie. Well, um... so uh, as I recall, um, Idle Fall Foundation was uh, set at a Bloom's level one and a Bloom's level two. So what if, if somebody said that, what exactly does that mean? Uh, well, I guess it, it's easy to kind of just start from a very high level, Bloom's levels and our interpretation of them. Loosely speaking, um, although you can go and have a look at the work of Benjamin Bloom if you want more detail on this, um, a, the Bloom's level is a way of classifying the uh, cognitive tasks in level of, call it difficulty for, e for ease's sake, um, that start off with very basic cognitive tasks. For example, uh, Bloom's level one would be, a, a recall task would be uh, an example of that. Um, what's the capital of... Uh, England, London, that's an example of a very basic Bloom's level one. It's recalling a fact that you've, you've learned. So for, for our idle listeners, it would be, what's the definition of an incident? Exactly. Uh, that would 
that would be uh yeah that that's that's classic sort of blooms level one um and blooms level two is uh, more in the uh descriptive side of it's about description and understanding it's not just recalling a fact or definition word perfectly um but uh, questions maybe and this doesn't apply so much to our idle exams but can you describe a feature of the sea for example it's uh, from from a list of things it's salty or something along that line it's not the best example but it's it's not just straight recall it's having to think about a concept and showing that that you understand it to a to a degree so uh, uh, an example of a bloom level two question might be something like um which which of the following practices helps organizations do x and then you've got a b c and d as options so you need to understand what that practice is all about in order to pick the, the correct one that's a um a, a key thing just to to point out um as with all things in assessment uh Bloom's levels have been revised, adapted with different interpretations over the years. For that small amount of our population that are familiar with Bloom's levels in more detail, uh, we use the Anderson and Crathwell 2001 revision, which actually differs from the original um, work of Benjamin Bloom slightly. It's an important distinction. It's an important distinction because occasionally we do get some people querying that uh, the exact positioning of things within the Bloom's level. And it's important from the assessment team that our entire team has a common understanding, a common vocabulary that we use. And so that's how we make sure that we are consistent. Sure. So for foundation, it seems like the focus uh, for uh, of, of how we develop the syllabus and the exam is uh, uh, we want to test if people are able to recall a definition or understand uh, a particular term or a concept or, or, or something similar. Um, how would be the, the next uh, levels of ITIL uh, differ? The managing professional, for example, um, the, the four modules there, um, are, are they tougher uh, or, or a heavier cognitive load, I guess is the technical term. Uh, how would you describe that to a well, um, the the managing professional modules um, uh, currently CDS, DPI, HVIT, and DSV um, are pitched at uh, Bloom's level two and three. And one of the things about like Bloom's levels is they they build on each. You see them as a as build building blocks. They build on each other. Um, and so the next step um, from understanding um is application applying the concept that you understand to a new or particular situation um uh, with in the managing professional suite you'll notice that the blooms level two stuff specifically covers the new concepts that are brought in by that particular module getting you up to speed with the the new concepts and terms that you might need to get a better understanding of hvit and then the uh, blooms level three takes that knowledge and the stuff that you've got developed an understanding of from foundation 
and ask you to apply it within the concept of the particular module. For example, um, and you will probably be able to find a better way of fleshing this out, but we might present a short scenario, well, a very short three or four sentence uh, scenario situation in a question stem that defy, describes, uh, let's say, a, a known error and ask the candidate to what is this an example of a known error presented with three other suitable distractors. And so the candidate is taking the knowledge and their understanding of a known error and is asked to recognize it in a different context. Okay. So once you've got had that back and forth with uh, the product management, product development team, I suppose, Tom, this is where you come in and perhaps to an extent Rashida as well, because this is where we actually start developing the, the actual guidance itself. Um, and for let, let's let's go let's let's skip ahead in time, I suppose, in, in terms of the project and talk about you know we've we've got some raw pages of text being written. Um, so Tom, how does your team come in um, to to uh, work on that and, and shape that into what looks like the, uh, something that we can head, uh, send off to the printers? Um, you've used the word copy edit. Uh, for those of uh, our, our listeners who are not familiar with that term, how would you explain that? Uh, that, that? Yeah, um, copy editing is essentially where we, as you say, we'll take the raw text written by our authors uh, and transform it through secret editing <laughs> methods, which only the content team knows, uh, in, in something, uh, you know, that's a, a much more finished, refined uh, product, something close to what we can publish. Um, what that involves can be all manner of things. Uh, I, I know a lot of people think that uh, a copy edit is just going through and making sure that, um, you know, words are spelled correctly, uh, the full stops are in the right place, that sort of thing. Um, and whilst that is a part of it, it's actually also a lot more than that. Um, if, what it actually involves can be, depending on the piece of work you're working on and, and sort of how well it's written, it can be a massive undertaking or quite a light touch. But basically what we'll do is work through the text in detail um, we do what we call a development edit on the text, where we're not just proofreading it and checking for errors, but we're also changing it and updating it as necessary. Um, and that could mean, uh, for instance, if we have a section of text that isn't working very well, it's you know quite hard to understand, we could pretty much scrap and rewrite it entirely on our side. Um, it could mean that we are reordering uh, sections of the book, which has happened before, uh, where you know late in the process, you're reading through it and you just feel that the order of certain chapters just doesn't work or the structure of the book is just a bit hard to follow or perhaps you realize um, that a concept that's introduced quite late in the book actually needs to be introduced much earlier um, to make sure that you know the subsequent chapters of the book make sense and can be understood yeah. properly so right. it, it could involve yeah quite large-scale changes even up to that point where we're reordering sections of the book um, yeah it's, it's it's it can be quite an in-depth process um, aside from rewriting sections, we also have to make sure that, uh, that we're being consistent, um, both across the book and across the entire ISO portfolio. So when we're looking at changes to make, uh, we have to make sure that, for instance, if we have, well, we have loads of definitions in our books, uh, we have to make sure that, let's say in one book, we define 
digital transformation in one way, uh, we have to be sure that we're consistent across that and not publishing in a separate book a different definition of digital transformation, which is completely contradictory to the first one. Um, so there's an element of that. We have to check that we are we are consistent across and we're not creating confusion. Um, there's also an element of the editing process um, where we have to cr create consistency across the book itself uh, in tone of voice. So the way we normally work, um, as you mentioned before, actually will kick off at the beginning of the process, the content team will be involved and we will get a team of authors um, signed up and working on the project. We'll normally be involved in creating a sort of table of contents for them to work and write content off at the start of the process. Um, and then they'll sort of go away and do their thing with, with a bit of check-in from us along the way. Um, and then when they deliver at the end, we'll have this complete text. Um, but it will be um, typically written from a, a team of different authors, they might have taken, say, a chapter each and written it, and we'll have a book that's been written by six different people. Um, we do normally employ lead editors who sort of lead the team, and they will do some work to, you know, combine it and unify it into one voice. But sometimes we'll also find we need a bit more work beyond that, um, particularly as we quite often have, um, you know, international teams, people from different backgrounds, uh, with different uh, languages as their, as their first language. English might not be their first language. Um, you get some some quirks in there uh, so you know part of our job would be to make sure that yeah we are consistent with tone of voice across the whole book and coming to that internationalization i suppose uh, is this how you and and rashida's team work together then to sort of try to um, normalize some of the language or remove some of the uh, local peculiarities as people write in the natural language yeah, so so we'll do the copy edit process in our team, um, and then we have a separate uh, language review, which Rashid will carry out afterwards. Um, we essentially try to use global English in our our, our, our books, um, which I'm sure Rashid will talk more about in a minute. But essentially, um, to make sure that we're not writing the text in a way that will make it especially difficult to translate when we are translating to different languages. So uh, we we have some guidelines essentially of what to do and what not to do. Um, for instance, I think any use of a, a, a dash is a, a big no-no. Um, <laughs> you mean, you mean uh, use of a hyphen? A hyphen, sorry, yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh, no, 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 sorry, like a... No, no, hyphens, hyphens are fine. It's no, M dashes okay. that I don't yes. like. <laughs> uh, it, it creates uh, some issues with translation. So if, if we try to leave any of those in, then we'll get a slap on the wrist from Rashida. So <laughs> <laughs> we have certain guidelines that we follow. And as we're going through, um, we will initially attempt to um, edit those guidelines. And then, yeah, there's a separate language review from Rashida afterwards where she'll go through and um, with her, her much more attuned eye pick up on things that we've missed. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, I mean, I'm sure at this point our, our listeners are probably a bit curious for examples of things uh, that we might have changed, you know, uh, small phrases that we might have replaced. Um, do any sort of come to mind that, that you can offer up as an example? Um, yeah, there is one that comes up regularly, despite the various slaps on the wrists that I keep you know, <laughs> going and, and distributing. Um, it's the use of while. Yes. It's, it's an it's an it's just a a simple word, um, but the while can mean uh, two things, and the first definition of that word is is actually although, or however, and so while um, this may be the case, yes, okay, although, right? Yeah. 
Um, so I, I keep going back on that one, and it's 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 getting a little bit easier now. So people are starting to recognise that um, it is an issue. Um, it, it's not it's not a major one, uh, but it can lead to someone misinterpreting the text. Uh, you know, they're reading something and they're thinking that it means although, when actually it means during or vice versa. Uh, is is the so while uh, this is happening, then yeah. Okay. Sorry, the first definition is not although, the first definition is during. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Even I'm getting my my <laughs> definitions mixed up. I've been looking too much at that. Um, so that so that's one of one of the ones, and and it comes back systematically when we do a translation, and one of them has slipped. Uh, you know, we will have to revert it back to its actual meaning. So this is just a very tiny little word. It's not a key term or anything like that. Um, and and for key terms, there is one that we did talk about at length, um, and that was capability. Um, yeah. And and there is actually a paragraph in the foundation manual which uh, which which is still creating uh, a number of issues for us um, because in the same um, text box we're talking about capability, ability, capacity, skill, expertise. And in some languages, um, the nuances are not that marked. And capability, for instance, um, is translated in some languages as capacity. It is actually the same word as capacity. So we've we had a well, you remember that actually we had oh, quite yeah. a, a few heated discussions around this one. And as a matter of fact, because we've started a, another project now in in one in in some languages, um, we, we were talking about this particular set of words uh, last week, and capability was was one of them, and capacity as well. Um, so it's it's very important. We're not trying to prevent people from using the words or the way that they speak when they are, you know, doing their own day-to-day -day thing. But when it comes to, you know, putting things in writing and, um, you know, distributing it to the wider audiences that read our content, uh, it's very important, and I keep reminding people of this, um, it's very important to bear in mind that more than 50% of the people who sit the exams in English are not native speakers of English. So this review of the language... Sorry, so more than half of the people who yes. sit the English exam are actually not native English speakers. That's right. Not native speakers of UK English. Okay. <laughs> this. So we've got how um, many actually, versions of English then are we talking this about? Way, it's way more than fifty percent, but you know, English is not their first language. It might be the la the language that they use when they, uh, you know, when when they work, but that's very different to actually being able to converse naturally in a, a language as a native speaker. Um, and we have to make sure that the language is not. It, and, and also one of the other misconceptions is that we're trying to simplify the language. It is not simplifying the language. I don't mind using really complex four-syllable words with you know, various compounds and everything. That is not the issue. The issue is consistency and accuracy. So when you choose words and terms, we have to... I, I always go uh, on about um, what is the first meaning of this word? What does it mean? Because if I'm, if I'm, and I am a foreigner, by the way, I'm not English, so English is not my we're, first we're language. All we're, we're all foreigners in some countries. I know. <laughs> 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 um, when I, if I look up a definition of a term, 
uh, the first definition is the one that I will be thinking about, even if I know that that's not necessarily the right one. So it takes me, it will take me maybe two or three times, you know, reading a full sentence. And 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 actually, if I have to read it two or three times, then it should be changed <laughs> because I, I'm familiar with the content. So if I, if I can't get it the first time, then, you know, more work needs to be done to it. Mm. And I suppose that, that then goes back up the loop, so back to Tom and his team, and possibly even back to James and the assessment team, if there's something that's so fundamentally, that, that's such a, such a fundamental change that we actually need to reflect it in the syllabus. Uh, for example, you know, capability. I, I, I think that perhaps there was some ver very early version of the IT4 Foundation syllabus that used the word capability, and we had to go all the way back to make sure that we were consistently changing everything to practices and reflecting the, that change um, all the way throughout. Um, but apart from the the, the raw manuscript, uh, Rashida, uh, uh, do you does your team work on translating other materials um, for, for our community? And and is there is there a difference in the work that you have to do when translating something else? Yes, um, the the content uh, is. Is, is complex in the sense that um, from, from a language perspective, we have to consider consistency. Um, and then we have to also consider consistency in the languages that we translate into. Um, so uh, one of the things that I keep saying is my end user is not the consultant or the trainer. My end user is the person who is sitting an exam because in most cases, they will have access to less content than someone who can read and speak English. So the content that we translate has to, has to be as accurate as possible, as consistent as possible, and, um, and as much as possible be supporting that person to have the same you know, uh, opportunity to pass the exam successfully. So the the effort and and the time that we spend discussing terminology with our subject matter experts around the world and going back to the content team and the product team to talk about that, um, it, it's 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 absolutely right that we should do it this way. But when we translate things, you know, if we translated blog posts or when we translate, uh, for instance, um, you know, some case studies or. Uh, some white papers or um, some of the marketing content uh, that we put out there. Um, we don't apply, I mean, we do, but not to the same level of, of um, you know, precision and also, um, you know, review process. The review process for, for the core guidance, so for the books and for the exams is insane. <laughs> but having said that... It, it is yes, it is insane in a good way. Having said that, it's it's um, it's very easy sometimes for you know for, for people to look at it and spot something and 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 come back and say, oh, uh, there is a mistake here. Um, there are sometimes there are inaccuracies. There are so many people working on the content, and there are so many different levels of checks of reviews of you know going back and forth. Even when we start translating, when in in theory, you know the work of the uh, of, of the 
the content team and the exam team is done in theory you know they, they've kind of you know passed it over to us and that's it and then we we take it on and um and it's like uh, the translation process is uh, you know in, in many places described as the uh, the canary in the mine so you send it through there and if it comes back out alive then everything's fine um, our canary keeps coming back with little things, with little, and and the people that we work with, all of these um, subject matter experts, some of them have actually taken part in the in the development of the content as well, um, but others haven't, and and it's that feedback that is really really essential in improving both the translation, but also, you know, the, the overall. Um, readability of the content in English, um, and it's 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 so essential to have that input from uh, from from those guys. Hi everyone, Akshay here. Uh, we're trying something new uh, with these uh, podcasts now. Uh, we are trying to use this platform that we have to highlight or showcase interesting people who do interesting things in different parts of the world. Uh, up. Next is uh, Chikako Mogami, who is the Managing Director for Quint Japan. Um, I met Chikako uh, when I first uh, had the opportunity to visit Japan uh, a few years ago to, uh, to attend a conference. Um, since then, she's become a, a firm friend and uh, she's a really interesting person. So let's hear a little bit more about her in her own words. I'm Chikako Mogami, living in Tokyo, Japan. And I'm working for Quint, and I'm a directing manager of Quint Japan. I'm basically delivering the training of I2 and Lean IT and in coming days, Agile and DevOps. I started this job around 10 years ago. Before that, I worked in uh, worked for a Japanese com- domestic company as a system engineer. And after that, I joined Quint. Now I'm a mainly trainer and consultant and sales and marketing and country manager and also do uh, back office and cleaning up the office. The challenges. When I was around 22 years old, when I was system engineer, uh, I was working in a very stressful st- uh, environment. So many stresses, the problems I had, but I couldn't find out how to solve that. One day I hit upon a very good idea. This is the basic of what I'm doing these days to reduce my stress. That is that when write down what is a problem for me, one sentence per one paper, a memo, and I piled up them in front of me. At that time, it was uh, around 30 or 40 memos in front of me. And I pick up one by one that, and ask to myself that, uh, can I solve this problem? Yes. Then I ask to me myself, how can I do that? And when I find out my solution, then I put that memo on my right-hand side. The next memo, when I read and ask to myself, can I, can I solve this uh, solve this problem? And if my answer is no, because uh, I have no money to solve this, or that this is a job of my manager uh, or my boss, or if the environment completely changed, uh, only if, only when the environment completely changed, it will be solved, but not not enough at this moment. Then I put that memo into my left-hand side, and I did through these things for 40 memos. And the memos on my right-hand side is the problems I could solve by myself. And the 
memos on the left hand side is the things I cannot solve by, my, by myself. So I should give up. Then no memos in front of me. That means I'm not facing to the problem. So that is my way to reduce my stress. And I'm keeping that in even these days. That is a, a kind of challenges and highlights. Some other recommendation is um, I'm doing uh, when I hit upon some idea, I'm imagining two things. One is dream scenario. And second one is nightmare scenario. And if the if I take this option and it goes to the nightmare scenario, even though whether I regret or not, and if my answer is no, I will not regret even though it goes to the nightmare scenario, then I take that option. I mean, I do that. I, I will go forward with that idea. Then even though what happens, what bad things happened, I will never regret. And so I, I, will, I can reduce or prevent the stress. When I became a manager, uh, no, before that, yeah. when my manager, uh, my senior engineers became a manager, I mean, boss of me, he became very stressful and get angry to me or others when we try to support him. And I could not understand that. And after that, when I became a country manager of this company, and so that means it's my turn. I became a manager and I have some members. Then the, when the members advise to me, then I feel that it's very fearable. I mean, they are pointed me out. I mean, they are criticizing to me. But it was not. When I talked with them and what they are thinking in their mind is just they want to help me and they want to improve the company. When I find that, I, I found that it's not fearable. So when uh, what, what I want to advise to the managers, if you feel fear about your members, just stop and don't think, don't uh, just please talk with them. And what Let's talk about what they want to do. Then maybe most of them is they don't want to attack to you, but they want to improve the situation. The re one of the reasons I joined Quint is I want to share the way of thinking of IT to the Japanese IT people. And as I said, that I was a very stressful env environment when I was uh, the system engineer. And one of the reasons is they didn't have, uh, or I didn't have the service management perspective at that time. We all, we were working only a kind of project management or just doing the project. When I learned the IT for, for the first time, I found, find out, I found out that this is the, one of the methods for IT people to change their, their world. And now I, you know, last year I wrote a book that for, uh, the very first step for IT and it's not talking about IT. It's talking about the service management or how we can work or how we should live this life. So. This is very basic point I want to uh, share with our people that set a goal and understand by myself that the purpose of our life or of our work, then we can improve our life or work better and better. I think the very concept or very fundamental thing is we can learn from the IT. So if you want to talk with me further about the IT or these kind of things, uh, please contact to the Quint, www.quintgroup.com. If you, if you had the opportunity, then, Rashida, to um, give some tips to maybe a non-native uh, uh, English speaker who happens to be reading one of our books or um, to, a, to a person who, who reads and writes uh, and speaks another language reading one of our translated books, 
is there any um, tips, uh, not necessarily tricks, but any tips that you would offer or um, pointers that you would offer uh, so that they can better absorb that information? I mean, would you, would, I don't think you can expect somebody to have, you know, the Japanese version of Idol for Foundation next to an English version of the, the, the same book and comparing the words side by side to make sure that it's all lines up and it's consistent and so on. But do you have any sort of um, tips uh, or suggestions to offer to people reading who, who hopefully also understand English? Because let's face it, this podcast is not being translated into any other language. It's going out in English. So uh, someone who might be listening to this. Yeah, I, I, there is. Um, I, I wouldn't, I mean, read the English content by all means. It's really good. Um, it, it is really good. Um, but for, for someone who, anyone actually, anyone, whether English is their first language or not, I would start with the glossary. Um, because there are a lot of misconceptions about the definition of, of the terms or what they mean. Um, and, and actually, capability and practices is one of them. Uh, another one that I keep going, that I keep kind of, Actually, there are, there are a number of ones. There's the, the RACI uh, table, so the, the roles and responsibilities or the, uh, the accountability, responsibility, etc. This is a really tricky one. Another one is problem and issue and risk. Um, and people come back with sometimes feedback on how those words are translated or how they are used in a certain context. And sometimes it's just a simple case of going back and saying, in idle risk is used as blah, 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 or in idle, problem means blah, 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 or accountable means this. It doesn't mean you're going to go to jail. It just means that within that particular project or that particular scenario, you are the ultimate responsible for this. So there isn't a kind of legal accountability unless it's a requirement from your company. Uh, but uh, this is what I would say, you know, think about it as the terminology is there to provide a common language to people, you know, wherever they come from. And that's why we have a glossary with definitions for those words. So I would go to the glossary first and then try and get into the, you know, the content. It's, it's very, it, it's not, it's not really that complex. It's, you know, it's very, um, it's very easy to read in a way. Uh, because it's it's common sense. It's not you know we're not talking about um, nuclear fission. Well, I suppose so. For some people, nuclear fission might be. <laughs> so so okay. So now in the life cycle of this product, we've gone through the syllabus. We've created the content. It's gone through a translations check, and I suppose at some point in this flow, James, it's probably come back to you and your team to start to work on actually developing exam questions. Um, and I understand we, we use a lot of uh, SMEs uh, to help with crafting exam questions. In, in your opinion, do you need to be, uh, let's say, a, a subject matter expert in creating exam questions or a subject matter expert in ITIL or any of the other products to be able to work on a, on a, on a project? If you, if you had to, Pick your pick your balance or a mix of skills. Would you concentrate? Which one would you concentrate? That's um, a, that's a really interesting question. Um, because it's 
easiest if you have both that knowledge of ITIL and knowledge of uh, crafting exam questions. That being said, um, before each project begins, we do, uh, well, in its early stages, we do go through how we, our approach to creating and writing questions with the SMEs that are involved on, on that project. Um, and the two really do sort of, they interplay with each other because it's easier to write a good quality exam question if you have that understanding of the content or that the content is, or that you spend the time familiarizing yourself with that. Um, and the higher Bloom's level the question is aimed at, uh, the more that that product knowledge is, well, or the more knowledge of the, the subject area is beneficial. Um, because as an SME uh, writing an exam question, you need to give consideration because uh, for as people will be familiar with, we uh, most of our exams are multiple choice questions in some form or another. And part of effective assessment is providing credible wrong answers that are still wrong answers. And that is a skill in itself, <laughs> but it is easier, as you will know from having worked with us, Akshay, um, if you know the product and sure. you don't accidentally provide a distractor that could in theory be uh, considered partially correct. What, what James, uh, so for those of you who don't know, what James is trying to obliquely reference, uh, refer to is the hours that he spent locked in a, in a workshop or an exam review session with Roman and myself, where we will be going at each other like hammering tongs, trying to discuss whether or not to change a question stem or one word in a question or an answer. And we'll come out after an hour with absolutely no clear direction whatsoever. Because and we've just spent the, the last one hour having a wonderful SME type discussion. And he's just sitting there rolling his eyes, wondering when we'll get on with things. So I think that's what he was trying to refer to. But uh, no, exa exam questions is definitely as much a, an art uh, as it is a science. Uh, and at some point, I presume that you know the, the, the content itself needs to go through reviews. The exam question needs to be tested. Uh, we have to test the quality of the translations and, and so on. Uh, is it one of the three of you who generally takes a lead with those sort of that, those sort of review activities, or uh, is it sort of split back into your respective? Uh, the names. Uh, what, what comes first? I'd say, at least from my side, we we tend to split and have separate reviews, but then we'll feed back into each other. Um, so certainly when we're developing the content, um, the rationales that the assessment team uh, has for their, their questions will be text that actually comes directly from the books, um, which has on several occasions created a bit of a headache for us, or a massive headache, I should say, because as we're trying to develop these um, simultaneously, uh, we're also trying to edit edit the work, and if um, you know a rationale has been used from a piece of text before it's been fine tuned by our team, uh, it might be in you know one of James's list of rationales. We'll take a look at it and go, oh my god, 
who, who wrote that and, and why have you done this? <laughs> and just sort of want to completely change the entire sentence. So um, certainly from our side, as we're doing, as I said, we have the copy edit and then there are several other sort of checks and, and reviews. Um, once we've done the copy edit, um, there's a sort of separate smaller copy edit from our, our publishing partner, TSO. Um, we also have a proofreading process, which comes in a bit later, which is for more minor changes. Um, and throughout that process as well, we'll also run the text by yourself, Akshay and Roman um, to review. So uh, at any of those points, changes can be introduced. Um, normally on our side, the way we'll do that is uh, we try to maintain a list of all the rationales in the book, anything that would have a knock-on effect on the assessment team. And you know, if something comes up, we'll then feed back to, to, to you guys and hopefully not have uh, destroyed your questions too much. <laughs> From the the assessment side of things, obviously we do a lot of responding to changes that may or may not um, come about. But um, a key part of our review is uh, the testing of our exam questions, uh, usually in some form of uh, beta session where we are able to put our questions before a sample of our audience and see how how they perform and that as well as getting their feedback verbally on what they thought of questions and sample papers we also can look at the statistics and see okay this question is performing in this particular manner um what does that mean and do we need to respond or amend that question before it goes into to live um, and that's kind of the point at which we generate our feedback that we kind of feed back into Tom um, as required um, um, but it it can sort of vary we also have much like Tom a sort of proofreading processes that we go through and we are incredibly grateful to Rashida and her team who actually review all of the questions that we have produced to see how, A, how translatable they are and B, whether there's any scope for, for misunderstanding. So we have in the past been one of those guilty parties that may have uh, left the occasional while in. Sure. Uh, I, I, I know that, uh, you know, so... This, for those who don't know, uh, the exams team brought me in to help proofread and review some of the questions as they were being developed uh, at some point last year. And uh, they asked me to, to have a go at writing some of my own exam questions. And uh, I definitely know that there were a lot of, Rashida's not going to like that type of comments as we went through some of the reviews. Uh, you know, uh, even something as simple as, um, what would be how would the organization carry out a task even the phrase carry out uh, as i learned uh, very swiftly is not something to be trifled with because it can be taken to be literally carried out of a particular place a physical from one physical location to another um and i remember you know going back and forth suggesting carry out uh, no uh, would execute work no because it means that you could actually be executing someone uh, and, you know, we just went back around and around and around trying to think of a way of saying, do this thing. Uh, I, I don't remember what we finally landed on, but 
I remember sometimes uh, translations checks of the questions could be as intense as translation checks of the actual raw uh, manuscript. Uh, Rashida, for for, all, uh, for 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 the ultimate say in the matter, instead of carry out or execute, what is a preferred neutral term? Perform. Ooh, that's a nice one. I haven't thought about that. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> um, so problem solved. <laughs> oh no, 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 problem is a tough is a, is a bad word. We can't use that. Okay. No. <laughs> um, so, so James, for 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 um, people who are who are thinking of uh, sitting one of our exams or going through uh, one of our course descriptions and syllabi and, and so on, uh, do you have any uh, tips or, or suggestions to offer so that to, to improve their understanding of? Uh, the sort of uh, materials that we're putting out there that, that sort, of, sort of originating from your team. It, it's okay to say no. I mean, it's it's as simple as as we can make it. So, you know, if you want to say no, go ahead. The only things, that I can only suggest the obvious of reading through it. And if you don't understand something, have a look at the the core guidance and the text. Look at it in conjunction with the sample paper, which is available from the Axelos website, and see if that can help round it out. Because those, uh, oh, Rashida, prepare, <laughs> prepare, uh, read the content, um, read some additional supplementary content. We have lots and lots of content on the website, whether it's uh, blog posts or white papers. Uh, but the most important thing is to find a training course with uh, a trainer that that knows you know his stuff. He knows the content, they or she knows the content, and they are able to provide you with questions. The the book is not necessarily designed to sit an exam. It is supporting that, but it's also a very good source of knowledge to manage IT services or. So it's it's about the um, you know understanding the, the the content before sitting the exam. So it's it's about preparation really. And that's yeah. really good. Yeah. And uh, if I could, oh, sorry, I was just going to yeah, say no, no, actually because no. I was I was thinking more in the syllabus theme rather than kind of exam preparation. Uh, just in addition to what kind of Rashida said, um, don't be afraid to ask questions. If you are taking a training course, don't be afraid to ask questions. If you have done something, if you don't understand something, do not be afraid to ask. Um, and also, quick shameless plug um, for some of our products, we've begun to run a, uh, to release uh, study apps which contain additional sample materials. So have a look on the website, see if there is a a study app available for oh, um, have a look and see if there is a study app available for your product to further and help further sort of enhance and help prepare for the exam. When you say uh, app, we're talking about you know go to the Apple App Store or the Google Play Store and search for Axios yes. uh, to be able to find the, the app uh, which contains some guidance, some exam questions to help you uh, start your learning journey. Yeah. Um, Let's uh, let's wrap it up here. Uh, once again, I'd like to thank everyone uh, who's made the time to, to join uh, in this discussion today. Uh, James from our exams team, Tom from our content team, and of course Rashida from the translations team. If you have any questions about some of the things we've discussed today, if you have any suggestions or um, 
questions for the podcast in general, uh, please do send it an email at ask at axelos.com and uh, we'll pick it up in a future episode and hopefully um, address that question. Uh, without uh, much else to say, so have a good day, everyone. Uh, to all our listeners out there, take care. Remember to wash your hands. Presented by Axelos.